You're listening to audio from Harvest Bible Chapel, Philadelphia, where we believe in preaching the authoritative power of God's Word each and every week. For more content and information about our church, visit harvestphiladelphia.org. We are super excited to be here with you. And uh, before I even dive in, uh, I was able to go around and meet some of you, uh, certainly not all of you. We've had some show up since I made my rounds earlier. Uh, we made a 12-hour drive yesterday after visiting family in the uh, Abingdon, Virginia area. Some of you may be familiar with that, of that area. Uh, so it was a long drive yesterday. We got to a hotel and uh, got some sleep, woke up, and uh, all three of my boys, my lovely bride, were all here. You've got the whole Stiltner clan today. And uh, we are just so excited to be here. Uh, I was looking at the weather, noticing that we've got bad weather coming all around us. But listen, we're here in this place today to do business with the Lord. And uh, I hope that is, is, is your heart. I hope that you don't see this uh, unfamiliar looking guy who is not Pastor Matt. And I hope you don't think that this is just another day of going through motions. We, listen, I'm not here to do that this morning. I am here this morning for you and I to come underneath the authority of God's word and to have the Lord just do in us what he desires to do so that he can do through us what he wishes to do. And to that end, I need the Lord's help. You need the Lord's help. Let's ask for it right now. Father, we love you. We are so thankful for you. Lord, I pray for these brothers and sisters sitting before me. Lord, would you even now, would you just set their minds at ease? Would you cast aside every distraction? Uh, Father, would you captivate their hearts? Lord, would you draw them to yourself? Lord, I pray that all of the worries and the fears and the concerns of last week and those things that we are anticipating for the coming week, Lord, I pray that they would all fade away right now. Lord, would you just draw our attention to the glory and the magnificence of your Son? Uh, Lord, would you draw us to a place where we joyfully come underneath the authority of your word? Lord, we ask you to do a work in our hearts today. And Father, I pray that you would make me nothing today. That, Lord, you you would be everything. Father, I pray that you would strengthen me with boldness today and cover me with humility. May you be glorified by all that is said, all that is done, and even the thoughts that we have and all of God's people said. Amen. So at the age of 17, which by the way, I'm not 17 in case you were wondering, you can laugh. At the age of 17, I made a commitment to the Lord uh, as the Lord was stirring in my heart and opening doors of various kinds. I made a commitment to the Lord in my heart. Lord, if if you will open doors, I will walk through those. Uh, I will go. If if, If you give me opportunities to preach, I will do that. And as my brother already mentioned a few minutes ago, uh, Julie, my wife, and I, uh, with our boys, we moved to Albany, New York several years ago uh, with Harvest uh, to plant a church. And uh, we went through a couple of name changes. We won't get into the details of that. And uh, we went through a lot of difficulty. uh, But the Lord, in his graciousness, allowed us to plant a church and then uh, pastor that church for about a year. And then through many circumstances and through the orchestration of events that we could not foresee, uh, it became very clear that we needed to step away from that ministry. And now, as my brother has already said, uh, we call Mifflinburg, or at least that general area, home. And I'm serving as discipleship pastor there with Pastor Steve Stoltfus. Uh, Some of you are probably familiar with him. I think he's been here before. I'm mentioning that to you this morning because I want want us all to wrap our heads around a, a thought. And the thought that I'm referring to is this. When God calls you, 
He does not just call you from, though that is certainly true. God calls you from a life of sin, from a life of depravity, from a life of hopelessness. But when God calls you, he does not just call you from something, but he calls you to something. And and that to something, we're not always certain of what it's going to look like. We're not always certain of how it's going to pan out. But one thing is for sure, God calls you to it. It's up to you and I to be faithful. As I was preparing for the message this morning, one of the thoughts that continued to come to my mind uh, relates to a man by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Most of you will be familiar with him. Before his martyrdom in 18, I'm sorry, in 1945, uh, this pastor, this theologian left for the world some words uh, that, that I find tremendously poignant. I share them with you this morning. One of his books, he writes, the cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering, now listen to this carefully, the first Christ suffering which every man must experience is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that dying of the old man which is the result of this encounter with Christ. And as we embark upon discipleship, are we embarking upon discipleship, church? Oh, come on now, you got to talk to me. Are we, are we embarking upon discipleship? Man, we better be, or we are, we are wasting our time. And so Bonhoeffer goes on to say, is, uh, he says this, as we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. Thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the very beginning of our community or our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, listen to me, church, he bids him to come and die. He bids him to come and die. It was A.W. Tozer who said these words, God is looking for men in whose hands his glory is safe. When Tozer wrote those words, I can only imagine what was going on in his mind and heart. He articulates this this thought that, that God is looking for men. He is looking for women in whose hands his glory is in a safe place. Church, can I ask you this morning, is God's glory safe in your hands right now? You say, well, Pastor Benny, listen, I'm not perfect. Hey, neither am I. That's not what we're getting after this morning. Are you striving after a life that rightfully displays the glory and the greatness of God? Are you doing that individually? Are you doing that as a a collective church? Far more than the call to take up your favorite podcast God lays before you and I a call to take up your cross, to take it up. And primarily, this is a question of discipleship. Uh, It's a question relative to to how your walk with the Lord is right now. And so around harvest, we often talk about a discipleship process. Uh, It was laid out beautifully this morning. We believe that if you take all of the passages on discipleship from Scripture uh, in one form or the other, in one measure or another, they seem to fit nicely into three big buckets. That every single Christ follower is called to be a worshiper. 24-7, most certainly. But man, let me tell you something. God calls for us to worship collectively like this. 
The author of Hebrews, for some reason, believes that it's important that you not forsake this. This is what it means to be a Christ follower. This is what it means to get after this thing called discipleship. You worship Christ, but not only do you worship Christ, you walk with Christ in the context of a community of other believers. This is the language that we use, church. Uh, we, we, we use this language because we believe that you cannot do this thing called Christianity on your own. Anybody with me this morning? Hey, listen, if you've tried it like I've tried it before, you have come to the clear conclusion that you can't do it alone, loved ones. It's not going to happen. And so we, we embrace this call to walk with Christ in the context of a community of other believers. And then we work for Christ because the scripture knows nothing. Listen to me, church. The scripture knows nothing of God saving you from and not saving you to. It knows nothing of that. And I loved listening to my brothers this morning as uh, not only uh, the, the team leading and worship, brothers and sisters on the stage, calling for us to lift high the name of Jesus. And then my brothers, Sherman, is that correct, brother? My brother laying out a vision of what it means to be part of this church, what it means to get on mission. Listen, church, this is what God calls us to. There's a lot of passages that we could turn to that opens our eyes to, to this need to be fervent disciples. But of all the places that we could go to, I, I want to take us this morning to Matthew chapter 5. Go ahead and tap or turn over to Matthew 5. We're going to pick up our reading over here in verse 13. You follow along with me. The challenge this morning is this. I have to somehow shave off the familiarity of this passage the best that I can. Uh, we are so familiar with it, but we're going to dive deep this morning, and hopefully God will be gracious to us. Verse 13, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste... How shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Keep in mind, the context of our passage is coming right off of the hills of the Lord's teaching on the Beatitudes. Uh, to, to say that the Beatitudes uh, were countercultural would be a huge understatement. As, as you read through Jesus' words, you come to this place of recognizing that, wow, this life that God has delivered or rescued us to, it's a serious life. The temptation, however, is to maybe... Look at the Beatitudes and think that perhaps God is calling us to a life of isolation. There's no way I'm going to live this kind of a Christian life unless I'm just isolated from everything and everybody. And of course, nothing can be further from the truth. And this is why Jesus makes this transition here and he begins to open up our minds and our understanding to this, this notion of being salt and being light. And yet, if we are being honest this morning, can we be honest this morning? You see, sometimes when I'm sharing with others, I talk about going to Realville. 
And we need to take a trip to Realville every once in a while. So let's go to Realville for a brief moment. We're going to be honest and we're going to recognize and affirm the reality that you and I sometimes struggle and sometimes what we prefer is we prefer isolation. Sometimes we prefer insulation. Sometimes we want the cozy little corners. Sometimes we want to stay in a safe, uh, I'm sorry, stay in a safe place. God calls us out of that. In fact, if you're a note taker this morning, either write this on a piece of paper or etch it upon your mind or your heart, uh, of all the ways that we could summarize this passage, I believe it at least means this. It means that indifference is a sure path to ineffectiveness. As the church listened to me this morning, we need to live on purpose. If, if you and I are embracing indifference, apathy, uh, I don't care, don't bother me, that kind of indifference will always, always, always lead to ineffectiveness. If you are looking at your particular ministry, if you are looking at your particular life, if you're looking at your family, and if you recognize that there is some measure of apathy or indifference that resides in you, and you wonder why there's not greater things happening in and through you, wonder no more. And any time a church finds themselves in a place of indifference, you can rest assured that that is not going to be a church that will be effective. We have to live on purpose. Now, what does that look like in the context of this passage? I'm glad you asked. I have been dying to tell you all morning. It, it at least looks like this. Your distinctiveness matters, and so you've got to protect it. Somebody say protect it. Your distinctiveness, listen to me carefully, loved ones, your distinctiveness, that which makes you who you are in God's eyes, that distinctiveness matters, but you and I have to protect it. You have to protect it. So notice what God's word says in verse 13, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. And so here we are in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has just laid out these beautiful attitudes or beatitudes. And the transition that you come to in verse 13 seems to be so that you and I would understand that the Christian life, listen to me, loved ones, it's not simply something to be believed, but it's something to be lived out. Sometimes we miss that. Sometimes there's a disconnect. We, we, we buy into this, this false belief that Christianity is just a set of beliefs. It is a set of beliefs, but it's more than that. It's something to be lived out of your life, out of my life. Christ will have nothing of a Christian life that's merely professed. It's not distinct. You and I can claim all day long to, 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 to embrace all of these tremendous truths of Christianity. Uh, we, we, we can recite things. We can, we, we, we can call back scripture to people. We can memorize it. We can do all of these things. But if there is no distinctiveness in our life, something badly is wrong and it's not God's word. Our distinctiveness matters. So in verse 13, it begins this way. You are the salt of the earth. Did you hear that? 
In your copy of God's word, does anybody here see you should become the salt? You see that in yours? Anybody see you should strive to be the salt? I don't see that in mine. I see something very declarative. You are. Can I just level with you this morning, loved ones? We're strangers. I get that. But we're also brothers and sisters. Think of that. We are in the same family. And as a member of your family this morning, I want to say to some of you, some of you need to embrace this for all that it's worth. Because you are looking at your life right now and you're saying, man, I don't look anything like salt. You're saying, you know what? I've had a horrible week. Some of you even struggled getting here this morning. Some of you husbands lit into your wives. Some of you wives lit into your husbands. Oh, you know what I'm talking about. Oh, no, we never do that, do we? Some of you yelled at your kids. And you don't feel all that salty this morning. And yet what God's word says is this. It says that this is what you are. This is what you, you are, the salt. This is what God has done in you and in me. And although this is a personal responsibility, and I do believe that it is, we fulfill it in its greatest sense only when we are in it together. Well, I heard somebody ask me just now, why is that, Pastor Benny? Thank you for asking. It's because I believe that Jesus must have been from the South. If you look at the original language here, yes, I'm from the South, in case you didn't know that yet. If you look at the original language here, what it actually says is y'all are the salt of the earth. That's what it says. It says y'all are the salt of the earth. The, the word you here, it's, it's actually a plural word. It's referring not to just an individual. It's referring to an entire group. It's referring to God's people. Now, I want you to think about that for just a moment. That what Christ is teaching us is there is a reality that exists among God's people who are gathered. And that reality is such that he looks at you and he looks at me as the church gathered. I'm not so much referring to the church scattered right now. But as the church gathered, he looks to, to us and he says, you guys are the salt of the earth. You're the salt of the earth. This is what I've done with you. This is, this is what, what I have accomplished in you. And although it's not an optional matter for our choosing, what is a choice is the quality of our saltiness. Notice what he says here. And you guys, by the way, if you see me rubbing my eye, um, like something funky is going on up here with me. Like I, my left eye is just pouring out uh, like it's nobody's business. And I don't know why. So we're going to make it through it. I can't take my glasses off because I'm as blind as a bat. So you pray for me as I continue to preach and we're going to figure this thing out. I think the enemy's trying to be at work this morning. We're not going to let him win. It's not an optional matter. God has declared this to be true of you and me. Thank you so much, dear. But what is an optional matter is the quality of our saltiness. Because notice what he says. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? This is very sobering. It's sobering because what it, what it reminds you and me of is, is a very simple truth. Listen to me, church. It is possible for you and I to become useless. 
I need us to feel that this morning. It is possible, even though God has stated very directly in his word here that you are the salt, it is, it is possible for you and I to become useless, for us to somehow, in some capacity, to lose our saltiness. It's a sobering thought. How does that happen? Well, understanding the metaphor here is a little bit challenging because there's no, there's no fewer than 11 different uses that we can trace out of salt in the ancient world. But there's at least two that I think are probably most prominent. Uh, on the one hand, we see salt as a preservative, but on the other hand, we see it as a, a seasoning. Now, let's talk about being a seasoning for just a moment. <laughs> Can I just tell you this morning that there are few things quite as glorious as a salty potato chip or French fry. Are you feeling me this morning? See, so, so where Julie and I, where we are from, there in the Tri-Cities area of uh, Bristol, Tennessee area, there's a restaurant called Pals. And uh, Pals, the, their restaurants are shaped like a hamburger and a hot dog. And they're, they're kind of obnoxious, quite honestly. It's turquoise and it's just really gaudy. But man, they've got some of the most amazing fries. And so you better believe that before we left town yesterday, uh, we had to make sure to get some of those. There's, there's something about saltiness on food. Uh, and quite honestly, that there's, there's very few things quite as disheartening as a plate full of food with no salt. I can guarantee you guys, as you had your Thanksgiving feasts, over the past few days, that you had plenty of salt to work with. Somebody said, preach it. Preach it. I ought to do that. <laughs> and yet one of the important factors that we need to understand is this. Salt, listen to me, salt has its greatest day. It has its absolute greatest day, its moment of greatness, not when it draws attention to itself, but when it accentuates or calls attention to the glory of that which is greater, and that is the food. We have to wrap ourselves, our minds, around this thought. You and I, the, the, the saltiness that God has made us is not the, the greater glory. The greater glory is what that accomplishes. When you and I live our lives in such a way that we accentuate or we call attention to the glory of the greater one, and that's Jesus Christ himself, that is when we're having our best day. That is when we are at our, at our, at our best. People see us and they think of Jesus. Now, on the other hand, salt is a preservative as well. This is a little bit removed from you and I. I know we've got a lot of hunters in PA. And when we moved here, we discovered that very quickly. And you know, listen, uh, God bless you. I, I think it's amazing. I absolutely think it's astonishing that you get up before the sun gets up, uh, that you go out into the middle of the woods, uh, Lord knows where you're going, that you find a tree that you've either already put a stand in it or you're going to put one in it and you're going to climb up that tree. God knows how you do that. I've never done it. I would love to see it. You climb up to the tree, that is somewhere in the tree, and then you sit in this tree stand that's, that's small. Like it's small. Are you feeling that this morning? And you sit there and you wait and you wait and you wait until an unsuspecting deer walks by and then you shoot it. That's awesome. 
Now, some of you, listen, I probably have some vegans or vegetarians in here this morning or, or like uh, people who really love deer, and I'm really sorry. I did not mean to offend you this, just now. I'm just calling attention to the reality that in PA and even where I'm from, Hunting is a big deal, and one of the things that you'll often see happen is when you have a piece of meat, especially in years past, you would cover it, you would bathe it with salt because that keeps the decay from moving at the speed that it typically does. You and I don't understand that as much these days. We have refrigerators, and so we we keep our meats in the refrigerator or in the freezer. But in the ancient world, this was a reality, and if you did not preserve your meat, it was a matter sometimes of sickness or health or life or death. And I said something just a moment ago that I need us to hear. It would seem that maybe what Jesus has in mind, at least in part here, is that he has done something in us so tremendous that you and I have the privilege to go into this world and in some measure slow down the decay that is going on all around us. This is at least in part what it means when God says you are the salt. That somehow the way that you and I live our lives, somehow the way that we carry ourselves, somehow the way that we speak, somehow the way that we respond, somehow the way that we make decisions, the way that we handle money, the way that we prioritize things, somehow that slows down the decay in this world. You're the salt of the earth. This is who y'all are. But notice Jesus' words again, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. It is possible for us to become useless. How does that happen? Well, from a scientific standpoint, for the more astute in the room, what we know to be true is that sodium chloride is actually a stable compound. I'm not that smart. All that means is this. It means that when you say that salt has lost its saltiness, it's kind of like saying that water has lost its wetness. It really doesn't compute all that well, but if you somehow get into uh, maybe the mindset that is laid out here in Jesus' words, perhaps what he's referring to is this, something that would happen often during the time in which he's writing this or he's speaking this, Something that would happen often is that the salt of the ancient world would many times become polluted. There would be ingredients that would be added with it, that would be mixed with it, that would make it something less than the salt that we're actually looking for. You know, it's possible. It's possible for you and I as the salt that God has called us It's possible for our lives to become polluted. It's possible for for something to transpire in our lives, maybe not in a moment in time, but maybe over time, for something to happen in our lives, for ingredients to be included into our lives, so that at some point in time, when you look at this individual, when you look at yourself, you recognize, wow, I know that this is who God says I am, and, and fundamentally it is who I am, but I'm not near as salty as I need to be. I've lost something. And I think of all the ways that this happens in the believer's life, one of the most devastating is through embracing compartmentalized Christianity. Let me turn your attention to the screen this morning. 
I want to unpack that just, just a little bit. You see, compartmentalized Christianity basically says this. It says, well, my faith is one of my major categories, but it's not the category. Because in reality, what I have is I have my faith, and then I have my family, and I have my job, and I have my hobbies, and I have my money, and I have my pursuits. And, and in my faith, I, I feign or, or I play uh, as one who is distinct among those who are like me. And in my family, though, I'm lacking distinctiveness. And in my job, I'm lacking distinctiveness. And in my hobbies, I lack distinctiveness. And in all of these other arenas, I lack distinctiveness because, hey, listen, this is my faith over here. It doesn't belong over here in my job. My faith is over here. It doesn't belong in my family. My faith is over here. It doesn't belong in my finances. And listen to me, church, when we embrace that kind of a false reality about the Christian life, you had better believe that you will lose your distinctiveness. You will. And so you'll handle your finances the same way people who don't have a clue about Jesus handles theirs. And you will raise your kids and you will treat your spouse the same way that somebody who is absolutely godless. And you will make decisions on a daily basis completely driven by the pleasure of your own flesh. And there is no distinctiveness in that. Church, if we're not careful, if we're not protecting our distinctiveness, we will not be fulfilling the great call that God has placed upon each of our lives. It is a call to take up your cross. The way that it ought to be is this. Your faith is everything. Your faith infiltrates your family and it infiltrates your job and it infiltrates your hobbies and your money and your pursuits. Your faith has something to do with all of that. Your life lived out for Christ and for God's glory, it impacts, it ought to impact everything. It ought to change the way that us husbands speak to our brides. It ought to change the way that we talk to our kids. It ought to change the way that we utilize our money. It ought to change the way that we spend our time. It ought to change the things that we focus on in life. It ought to change our decision making. This is what saving faith is. This is what God's called us to. It is not something you can accomplish on a Sunday morning. It's something that is accomplished as you leave this building I mentioned a few minutes ago, right now where the church gather, and that's a beautiful thing, don't forsake it. But in just a little bit, you're going to be the church scattered, and you're going to go to your homes, and you're going to go to your workplaces this week, and you're going to go to, to your, your, your gas stations, and, and your grocery stores, and, and, and your friends, and, and your schools. And as you're the church scattered, right then and there, that's where God has called for you and I to live out our faith and to be the salt. Your distinctiveness matters. And indifference is not going to cut it. In this regard, church, you will, I will always be ineffective if I allow that to stand. I love what Ferguson said, Sinclair Ferguson. He says, how slow we often are to learn this lesson. At times, we fall into the trap of being blackmailed by a world that says, unless I find your life attractive on my own terms, I will not respond to the message of the gospel. But if we yield at that point, we become prisoners of perpetual blackmail. The church then becomes both powerless and pointless. God forbid that we ever make it there. 
God forbid. And so, to kind of drive this point home this morning, I'll share this story with you about a man named Andre Tomas. This is told in one of Ravi Zacharias' books, Recapture the Wonder, and he talks about this Hungarian man, Andre Tomas. And, and this Hungarian man, at the same time that, that Bonhoeffer was being martyred, this man was imprisoned, and, and the prison guards believed him to be insane because, uh, oddly enough, he spoke a, a very unique, a very uncommon Hungarian dialect. And so they, they thought that he was speaking nothing but gibberish, and they placed him essentially in a psychiatric ward uh, in isolation as a very young man. In fact, when he went into isolation, he was 20 years old. And when he came out, he was 75 years old. 55 years later, he comes out, and the only thing that he wants to see as soon as he is released from those prison bars is he wants to see a mirror. And as he looks at the mirror in front of him and he begins to gaze at the person looking back at him, all he could do is weep and cry out. He doesn't recognize this man. It had been 55 years since he had seen his face last. And as he stares into the mirror at this emaciated person looking at him, he did not recognize the one who was staring at him. It is a horrible thing to lose one's identity at the hands of others. But it is incomprehensible to lose your identity in your own mind. And so I'm reminding us this morning, church, you are the salt. That's who you are. Now, how you're living is a different question. But let's you and I get after this thing and let's be who God has declared us to be. We are the salt. Not only does your distinctiveness matter, but your witness matters. So everybody say display it. Your, your witness matters. What God has called you to in this lost and dark world, it matters. We are called to display it. Look at the next words in verse 14. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others. So it's not only important to protect your distinctiveness, but it's important to display your witness to a watching world. Keep in mind, church, the world is a dark place. Man, if you don't believe me, just watch the news for a couple of hours. And you know, it's interesting, the topic of light in Scripture, it's not scarce. Man, I loved that bumper video, uh, brother, earlier. I loved that. That was such a powerful bumper video to lead us into this discussion this morning. Uh, calling attention to, to, the, to this unbelievable thought that you and I are called to live out our lives as the light of the world. But let's back up just a little bit. Because one of the things we need to understand is this, is scripture has a lot to say about light and it's not all about us. In fact, you might be surprised or maybe you're not to know that in God's word in 1 John 1, 5, it says that God is light and in him there is no darkness. The apostle James refers to God as the father of lights. And it's not just the Father, Jesus himself is described as a light that has come into the world. We see this in John 3, this is the verdict, light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of the light because their deeds were evil. 
But in love, God did not choose to sit by idly. Aren't we thankful for that this morning? Aren't we thankful that he, he brought a light to this dark world? The Father sent the Son into the dark world. And yet here in our passage, we're told a different message. Jesus says from his own lips, you are the light of the world. And so understand this. Let's wrap our heads around this. The same thing that is said about the Father, that is said about the Son, is now in some measure said about you and said about me. Listen to me, loved ones. That is astonishing to me. Have you seen me? I don't feel like light. Sometimes I feel like anything but that. Sometimes we feel like we are a walking cloud. We don't have anything to offer. We're failing as a dad. We're failing as a mom. We're failing uh, as a boss uh, for the company that we own. We're, we're, we're failing as a pastor. We're fa- Listen, d- do you guys understand? Just a couple of few months ago, I stepped away from a church plant that my wife and I, with our boys, by the way, we poured our lives into it. I'm talking literal blood, sweat, and tears. We poured ourselves into it. I stepped away from it. But you don't need to feel sorry for me. I just want you to understand something. We all go through dark seasons. And we all go through these times in life when you feel like that you just don't have anything to give. You feel like that you're just a failure. And what God says about you and me, though, is this. If you're a child of God, he says, you are the light. That's who you are. Don't hide it. And yet it is possible to hide it. It is possible to let discouragement win. It's so important to understand the nature of the light that we are called. Unlike the sun, for instance, which reaches 15 million degrees Celsius at its core, it is generated by nuclear fusion, and it it produces this amazing light. But when you look at the moon in the middle of the night, and you see it glowing, and you see it giving, giving light on a very dark night, one of the things that crosses our mind is this. Wow, that, that's happening, and yet the moon is not producing its own light. It's a derivative life, light. It's the same thing that you and I possess. You see, I don't generate it. I don't have some kind of a spiritual nuclear fusion going on in me. I'll tell you what I've got going on in me. A ton of grace and a ton of mercy. And by God's grace and by God's mercy, on my best days, I can reflect something of his beauty and his glory. Are you with me this morning? This is what God calls us to be and to do. You're the light of the world. What's so astonishing about that is this, is that when you look at the imagery that, that is laid out here, Jesus' words are so powerful. He says, listen, he says, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket. That would be crazy. But you put it on a lampstand. And so in ancient times, it would actually be quite common for cities to be built upon hills. There's a lot of reasons for that. Most notably, for instance, would be uh, to, to have a good position for defense. And also, if you went to the ancient world, you would find oftentimes a wooden stand of sorts in a Jewish home. And they would, they would take this lamp, they would put it on the stand, and they would oftentimes try to burn it throughout the day. 
As they would burn it, it would do in fact what Jesus says it does. It would give light to all who are in the house. And one of the astonishing things about this imagery is this, is that God calls you and I a light, not only because we show people what is in the darkness, but listen to me carefully, church, we also show people how to get out of the darkness. This is what we're to be about. Do you have a friend or a family member or a coworker or a schoolmate right now who just simply does not know Jesus? That means you and I have a responsibility. No, you cannot save them. No, you cannot turn a heart of stone into a heart of flesh. But my goodness, church, if we're not being busy, if we're not getting after this thing called Christianity, if we're not taking this seriously and living out what God has already said to be true of you, then we've got a problem. There are people all around us who need the hope that you and I possess. All around us. God says, you're the light. You are. Lastly, verse 16. Not only does your distinctiveness matter, so protect it. Your witness matters, and so display it. But your intent matters, and so we need to examine it. God's word says in verse 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others. To what end, we might ask? So that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is so beautiful. I want you to see something here. There's basically two words that are rendered good in our English translations. And so when you and I are reading from our English Bibles and we come across the word good, it's typically going to be one of two different Greek words. And in this particular case, when you're looking at this, one of the things to keep in mind is one of those Greek words is agathos. It's a word that really just describes something that is practically and morally good. And it centers on quality. And yet when you look at what Jesus teaches us here in this section, when he utilizes the word good, that they may see your good works, It certainly is referring to a kind of works that are practically and morally good, but the word that's used here is a different word. It's a word that actually is often used to describe something that is visibly beautiful. I want you to put these pieces together. What Jesus is saying is that there is a type of work that you and I can engage in that is a beautiful work. It's a kind of work that is seen. It's a kind of work that impacts Yes, it can, it can happen behind the scenes. I, I'm not discounting that. It can happen back in the booth. It, it can happen back in the classrooms when people are serving little kids. I understand that. But it's a kind of work that if you and I can observe it, we would look at it and we would say, man, that's a beautiful thing. This is the kind of work that Christ calls us to. And yet the sober reality for many of us this morning is that some of us are just ugly this morning. No, I'm not talking about your cheek lines. I'm not talking about your hair. For those of you who have hair, I'm not talking about your hair. I'm not talking about the way you wear your clothes. I'm not talking about the way that you smile. I'm talking about the way that you and I live. Some of us are ugly. And you say, well, that's just a personal thing, Pastor Benny. No, it's not. Because y'all are the salt of the earth. It's not just a personal thing. It's a corporate thing. You say, well, what what would it look like, Pastor Benny, if, if, if I were maybe living out an ugly life? Well, thank you for asking again. 
You might be an ugly Christian if your words cut like an axe instead of like a scalpel when talking to a brother or sister struggling with sin. Did you hear that, church? You see, some of us, were all about the truth. We just unfortunately forget the love. And you think, well, 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 sometimes the truth hurts. Yeah, it does. But sometimes it doesn't have to hurt in the same measure that it sometimes does. Because sometimes what it requires is for you and I to be a little bit more gracious when we speak truth and to use a scalpel instead of an ax. You might be an ugly Christian if your righteous stands on social media emit a stench so strong that it can be smelled through the screens of all those who read it. Oh, well, Pastor Benny, I'm supposed to be the light and I'm supposed to be the salt. Yeah, you are, even on your screens, even on your devices. And I know that it's so easy to type the messages out and then, and then press the button so that it gets plastered out there for everybody to see. And man, I'm going to take a strong stand on this and I'm going to take a, a strong stand on that. Make sure it doesn't stink. Make sure it doesn't stink. You might be an ugly Christian if you're giving both inside and outside of the church. Carries with it that awful characteristic of being grumpy money. God's not interested in your grumpy money. That's not a beautiful work. That's not a beautiful thing. You might be an ugly Christian if your serving seems to never cross the threshold into delight and it simply remains a begrudging duty. You see, listen, when I walked in this morning, I started recognizing how much is going down here on a Sunday morning. We've got, listen, you guys have people showing up at 7, 7.30 in the morning just to make sure that this takes place. And I know a little something about that. That's hard work. And if you find yourself in the middle of doing that work and you find yourself staring at all the other people who are not doing the work more than you're looking at the work at hand, there's a problem. And how easy that is. How easy it is to grow a complaining spirit in our hearts. And that's not a beautiful work. It's an ugly thing. The cold hard truth is that some of us for far too long have been champions of foul faith, of ugly Christianity. And yet when you live in such a way, all you're doing is drawing attention to yourself. And yet what God's call is, is that you and I would engage in a kind of work that is done in such a way, with such a beauty, that when people see it, listen to me, church, when they see that work being done, man, it is like a mirror that reflects only to God. And they say, wow, what an amazing God we serve. This is what God's called us to. Let your light shine in such a way that when others see your good works, they are compelled to glorify God. What a powerful thing that is. So here's the principle. In all that you do, the goal must be to be seen and yet unseen. That's the principle. Did you hear it this morning? And every good work that you're engaging in, because we are striving to be representatives of Christ, the goal must always be to be seen and yet unseen. What do I mean by that? To be seen, to be actively busy about the work of God. But even as you're being seen, when people look at you, they see through you and they see Christ who is working in you. That is the principle. So I close with this. Max Lucado said in his book, It's Not About Me, he he describes a setting where you and I might find ourselves in a staff meeting with God. Can you imagine that? <laughs> I can't, but I'm trying. 
So you're sitting down at the big table in a staff meeting with God, and, and in this meeting, Lucado says this. He says, your conversation would revolve around one question. God simply asks us this. How can we reveal my glory today? You're sitting at the table, God looks at you, and you're talking about the work that is ahead of you, and he says, there's one thing we need to focus on. How can we reveal something more of my glory today? He goes on to say, heaven's framed and mounted purpose statement hangs in the angel's break room, just above the angel food cake, and it reads this, declare God's glory. This is the mission that God has given us. So my question for you is this, where do you need to be obedient? It's a simple question. Where do you need to be obedient? In what way have you been telling the Lord no? What have you given up on too soon? What step of obedience have you been delaying? Uh, What sin is keeping you from being effective? The temptation that the church always experiences is to be like the world. It's the temptation to enjoy the comfort of a majority, to be at home, to be at peace, to have no enemies. Is it not true that we all yearn for such experience? But if the church is to be truly successful, it must be unlike anything else we find in life. If you and I are to see God do great things through us, we must be unlike any other thing, organization, people, group that you can imagine. This is what it means to be salt. This is what it means to be light. We bow your heads and close your eyes. Indifference will always be a sure path to ineffectiveness. Because what God actually calls us to is he calls us to live on purpose. And this morning, I know that some of you showed up. Maybe you were concerned about the roads. Maybe you were wondering what the day would have in store. Some of you perhaps didn't even know that Pastor Matt would be gone today. And so there I was standing in front of this room, staring at you, talking, walking through this passage. And perhaps some of you here, you never imagined that the Lord would have something to say to you. But I believe that he did in some of your hearts here this morning. I don't believe that for my own good. I don't believe that for my own glory. I just believe in the power of God's word. One of the reminders that we need to embrace this morning, for some of us at least, is that you are salt if you're a child of God. And you are the light. And you need to lay down the misplaced shame. You need to stop living at the feet of yesterday. And you need to get busy with the work that God has for you today. Live out the life that God has already declared to be true in you. If that's you this morning, listen, we're we're just going to make this real simple. If the Spirit of God is speaking to your heart and you know that you are that person who's living in past failures, you know that you are that person who is not embracing all that God has said you are. If that's you this morning and the Spirit of God has spoken to your heart in a very powerful way, just slip your hand up and put it right back down. Okay, I see. Okay, anybody else? Pastor Benny, that's me. I hear the Spirit of God saying that to me today. Okay, great. For other of us, uh, others of us this morning, perhaps the Spirit of God who convicts us of sin, righteousness, and judgment 
Maybe the Spirit of God has identified an area of your life where you have just simply polluted yourself. Where yes, God says that you are the salt of the earth, but when you look at your life, man, it is so filled with junk that doesn't belong there. It is absolutely impossible right now for you to be as effective as God calls for you to be. If that's you, be honest before the Lord this morning. Pastor Benny, that's me. I hear the Spirit of God. He's calling attention to that in my life right now. You've got a polluted life. I see you, brother. I see, I see several hands. It takes a lot of courage to do that. I see your hands. We came here to do business this morning, so let's do that. Father, my brothers and sisters sitting before you, Lord, those who raised their hands and those who did not. Lord, there's a work that you're doing in each of our hearts today. And Lord, I pray that your voice would be much, much louder than mine. I pray, God, that uh, the folks sitting here in this room would forget uh, the, the runny nose and the runny eye and, and, and maybe the missteps with words and, and maybe the antics that were done here in front of them. And Lord, I pray that they would remember the power of your word. I pray, Lord, that they would remember the teaching of your word. I pray, God, that they would hear that, that they would listen to that. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters this morning who see their lives as polluted right now. They've allowed things to come in that is, that is making them something less than salty. And Lord, your word teaches us that when we find ourselves in that position, we're no better than, than the salt that's thrown on the path for men to trample upon. Lord, let these brothers and sisters not be trampled upon. Father, I pray that you'd give them the courage and the strength to make things right with you right now. Lord, for those who have been living in past failure, God, would you just deliver them from that misplaced shame? Lord, I pray that you would renew in their minds and hearts the reality, the truth of your word that says they are the salt and they are the light. And God, would you give them a freshness in their walk today? Lord, we love you. We thank you for the power of your word. We thank you, Lord, that you love us just as we are. But oh God, we are super excited that you love us far too much to leave us that way. And so Lord, continue the good work that you have begun. We rest upon that. And all of God's people said... Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio from Harvest Bible Chapel, Philadelphia. For more audio, content, and information about our church, visit harvestphiladelphia.org.